politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'd say one of the biggest things that skews me out about uh, facial recognition is the fact that once your face is in the system, you can't get it back out again. Why? Just because they're once they once they have a scan of your face, that is something that you can't really get it off of a database. No one who takes that information is going to say, "Oh, we don't need that anymore," and then just delete it. So, but the other thing is, I mean, if they aren't accurate, that doesn't matter. It does matter. No, if they're if you say the facial recognition systems aren't accurate, then who cares? She's like, yeah, sure, I look like. Do you know how many people walk up to me and think I'm the dude who owns Pilgrim Surf Shop in Brooklyn? A lot. Wait, you're not the dude that owns Pilgrim Surf Shop in No, Brooklyn? that dude's name is Chris, and I'm Bo, and we're two different people, but we look alike. My point is that, you know, if it doesn't work, you know, who cares? What What's the point? Well, if the Chris in question were to decide to uh, kill someone or steal something or what have you, and the cops He's are looking nice for you. guy. <laughs> no. But, I mean, but then I could say, like, yeah, but your facial recognition system is crap. Well, that's Go great. Away. That's what your lawyer has to say while you're in custody. Oh, I, I got you. Is there any, like, what's the upshot? Is there anything that can, is being done to, like, deal with that? Or are we just living in a dystopia? There are a number of cities now that are starting to back away from facial recognition technology. And there's also clothing that camouflages you against it. Clothing? Yeah, like a shirt or a jacket that has uh, sort of a geometric pattern on it that throws off facial recognition scanners. You know, you know what's so funny about uh, Travis, Adam, is that he actually, I wonder sometimes if he actually thinks the show is to help criminals. <laughs> <laughs> Good tip, Trav. I'm here to help. Well, sometimes you have to think like a criminal in order to avoid being taken by a criminal. I mean, when you and I were writing the book Swiped, uh, we were wondering whether we were giving people a how-to-it guide. I wasn't wondering about it. I was pretty sure that we were being, I mean, half our readership was criminals, but oh well. Also, I mean, criminals do have a vested interest in uh, keeping their privacy. That they do. Oh, well. For all the wrong reasons, but yeah. Criminals who are listening to the show, welcome. Don't ever tell anyone that we helped you. So to all the criminals and consumers who are listening... <laughs> Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam, cyber curiosity seeker. I'm Bo, cyber bookmark. And I'm Travis, cyber freak. And today we talk to one of the world's leading privacy experts, the only three-term commissioner of information and privacy for Ontario, Canada, Dr. Ann Kavukia. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. 
I use it to make money because it works. Not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split-second financial decisions, and that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks, and I trade options, and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rogue Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rogue's got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. Dr. Ankavukian, welcome to our show. How are you? A pleasure, Adam. It's been far too long. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. All right, so first of all, Anne, where are you coming to us from right now? I'm in Toronto. My home is in Toronto, Canada, and it's a beautiful day, but it's getting hot. And, you know, I was only four when we came here uh, to Canada. I was born in Cairo in Egypt, and um, obviously it gets very hot there. I don't remember it, but my mother used to say, it's so much cooler here in Canada. <laughs> so what was your family doing in Cairo when you were born? Okay, really quick story. Um, I'm sure you've all heard about the Armenian Genocide. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm gonna get of course. 1915. Okay. Uh, my grandparents were about to be were in the prison. Were about to be killed the next morning. My father mm-hmm. would have been three years old. So he, this is I love this story. He was an amazing painter, and he was trying to think of how can I save my family. And then my grandmother telling me, and she said, we always used to carry parchment paper and charcoal because he loved to etch. So during that night, she held a candle. He etched a portrait of General Pasha, who was the Turkish general. He'd seen earlier in the day. And when they're the next morning, they're carting him off to be killed. And he said, please give this to, says to the soldier, give this to General Pasha with my regards. And the general goes, stupid man, what's he going to want to do with this? So my grandfather thought that was it. On horseback comes riding General Pasha, waving the parchment paper saying, who did this? I want to know who did this. And my grandfather says, FND, that's sir in Turkish. I did it. He said, I like it very much. You and your family, you're free to go. Can you imagine? Wow. Wow. See? I use that as an example of how, forget about looking at the odds, never give up on what you believe in. So anyway, my parents wanted to give thanks to God. They went to the Armenian quarter 
in, in Jerusalem, in the old quarter, one of the quarters is the Armenian quarter. And they went to the cathedral there and my granddad said, God has saved our life, what can I do? And he said, well, if you can fix, there was a beautiful cathedral in, in the Armenian quarter, but it was horrible. He said, if you can restore some of these frescoes and things, that would be great. So he spent two years there, grandpa restored everything. I went there years later for a conference in Jerusalem and I went and the cathedral was open and the guy here wrote to the guy there and they showed me everything my grandfather had done, it was amazing. Anyway, at the end of that, they were in Cairo, very close by, and they there was a big Armenian um, community there, and that's where they lived until it, I was four years old. Abdul Nasser came in. It used to be under British rule, uh, Cairo, but then they went out. Abdul Nasser came in, and my mom said everything changed. Freedom went out the door. Armenians value freedom, obviously, enormously. My father, who was a very well-known photographer, uh, was was appointed the official photographer of Nasser, which meant he had no freedom whatsoever. And they literally left in the dead of the night one night. My mother, mother used to say, eight suitcases, three children, and two grandmothers, and came <laughs> to Canada. And my gra- my dad's big camera, back then cameras were huge, a colleague of his from um, oh, somewhere in Europe had come to visit him. And he said, can I ship this to you? And when I'm ready, will you ship it to Canada? He said, yes. And that's how they did it. He shipped it to this guy. We came over here. And eventually, the colleague was wonderful. He shipped it to dad here in Toronto. And away, away it goes. Okay, sorry. Too much story. Too much story. Well, no, 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 no. And, and uh, just two other little factoids uh, is that uh, in addition to being an extremely internationally uh, respected individual yourself, Thank you, you have one brother who is a very famous singer-songwriter uh, for children, uh, Rafi. Rafi, yeah, and He's so dear your, to me. Uh, and your other brother is is uh, is a very well known and highly respected photographer as well. That's right. My my oldest brother Onig, that's O N N I G. He worked with my dad to start a photography studio here in Canada, and it just took off. And then uh, my brother continued it after my brother di- my father died. And um, so I've got a wonderful photographer as a brother, a wonderful singer. As <laughs> and we, we always, we, we applaud each other always. I mean, I said, we were, I was going to say we have sibling rivalry, but in the nicest way, we always are applauding each other to everyone else. Uh, love is And Rafi is a world's renowned, he's world famous singer, Should no? we sing yeah. Baby Beluga mm-hmm. together? Yeah, he is. I'm so proud of him. No, no. In, in his field, he's world famous. Her, her he's other amazing. brother Kavuk is is I think that's Apron. Yeah, is, is world famous, and yeah. and and you are world famous. <laughs> so, I mean, you were the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, uh, yep. and in fact, the longest serving three terms. I'm the only one who stuck it out three terms. I yeah. loved it. Seven, I loved it. Seven, I believe, seventeen years and seven months. But Anne, you come from this family in the arts, and um, they're very heavily in the arts. I, it's, I'm curious, how does somebody who comes from such an arts-heavy background get involved in cybersecurity? I was the only intellectual in our family, <laughs> so, so to speak. And my mother, I'll never forget when I was young, she said this to me. She said, Annie, I don't care what you choose to do in your life. I will support whatever you choose to do, but whatever you do, you have to excel at because there are very few Armenians left worldwide and we have to show the world we really know how to do things. I'll never forget that. And I said, 
well, I'm very interested in legal issues and psychology. And then I learned coding and how do you get things going? So I just went through here at the University of Toronto, straight through, did my master's, my PhD, and just loved it and wanted to apply it to privacy because privacy is so important to me. It forms the foundation of our freedom. And without it, you have nothing to me. So that's what I've been pushing all along. And, and I also love to tell people, get rid of the zero-sum mindset of privacy versus security or privacy versus data utility. That's so yesterday. You have to have both. You have to have hand-in-hand privacy and data utility and security and everything. Can you explain what you mean by a data utility? Data, whatever the data is intended to do. And mm-hmm. literally, there's a wide swath. I mean, marketing, privacy and marketing in terms of data utility. Uh, believe it or not, uh, once a year, the Canadian Marketing Association has their annual conference. They often invite me to be their opening keynote speaker. And I always start by saying, I'm sure I'm the least popular speaker here today. <laughs> and fortunately, they laugh. And I say, look, I want to tell you how to do marketing so that you don't tick off all your customers. You get their consent to do things, and then they'll point you to what they're interested in receiving, and it will increase the value of what you're doing. That's a, So a data utility, make whatever data you have as useful as possible to you and strongly privacy protected. You can do both. So that's what I love doing. I show people how to do this. When did you first, when was it, how many years ago was it that you first became interested in consumer privacy? Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of my background. Uh, Much to my parents' chagrin, I left home when I was 17. I was very rebellious. And I went and I uh, worked actually for a marketing company. I I really loved it. And I did a lot of um, technical work for them, uh, research. You know, we used to do public research. And there I learned that this particular marketing agency, and maybe others at the time, that they didn't respect people's privacy. They did whatever they wanted with the information they collected and used it in ways that were never intended. And given my background as well, I always thought you had to be very sensitive towards people's requests and needs in terms of their personal information. So that was a turnoff to me. I remember going home to my parents on a Sunday for family meal and I was very annoyed. And at that time, they happened to have invited a professor from the University of Ottawa. And he could see I was annoyed. He could see I was interested in learning things. So this was at least in 1999. Yeah. At least. Yeah. And this was before most people really, it was on your radar before it was on most people's radar. It was a combination of my background and how important privacy is. Like my grandmother used to say, she said, people would always look over their shoulders, be very careful about what they said. Because they said, if you weren't careful, if you said anything against the Turks, they just, they shot, they killed you right on the spot. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but to them, privacy was critical that you control who hears what you say and what you do and how you do it. So this was infused in me from like childhood. And then I applied that, obviously, all the information society, we live in all the online communications and activity, but I never wanted to make privacy a negative in terms of it will prevent you from doing things. Right. No, you do both. That's why I created privacy by design. So I won't talk about it yet, but that's how it all started. Well, no, and that's important because we're we're living in what is clearly a surveillance economy. So that, that must give you nightmares. 
It does, but I tell people, you don't give up on privacy just because surveillance is mounting, especially in the online world. I always say to people, you never say no to groups that you think might not be doing the best job at privacy. You help them, you raise the bar, you show them how to do it. And so when I created Privacy by Design, that's why I did it. I wanted something that was proactive, that could be embedded into the design of your operations, bake it into the code so that you could ideally prevent the privacy harms from arising. And at the time when I was appointed privacy commissioner for the first time, I went to the office and there's like brilliant, dozens of brilliant lawyers, right? And they're all telling me how they do privacy, which is to apply the law after there's a privacy infraction or data breach and then you want to remedy it. All that's valuable. I said, but I want to prevent it. Ideally, I want to be upfront, proactive, try to prevent it. And they just looked at me like, are you kidding? So literally over three nights at my kitchen table, I created privacy by design. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means... You get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't, like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Bikes.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If we start at the beginning on privacy by design, how did you come up with the actual concept, privacy by design, and how long did it take for it to take shape? I had been appointed privacy commissioner, and I had been thinking about these things for a long time uh, at my kitchen table, literally with my husband, who's a brilliant, uh, you know, PhD neurophysiology. He's, he's like brilliant. He knows everything. And so we, we were, I was always talking about this stuff. So the interest in coding and learning how to embed things into design arose from my conversations with my husband. And so when I took this to the office, as I said, it was foreign to them because they were lawyers. I mean, they just studied the law and this was all very foreign to them. And so literally at my kitchen table at home over three nights talking with my husband, I came up with Privacy by Design, the seven foundational principles. And then I went to the office and literally sold it. I had to sell it to my lawyers, but they got it. I wasn't saying forget the law. No, strong laws are very important. 
but I was saying, let's minimize our need to rely on the law if right from the outset at the design stage proactively, you can prevent the harms from arising. And that sold, and then it took off. What are the seven principles? First one, be proactive. You want to prevent the privacy harms from arising as opposed to offer remediation after the fact. The second principle is privacy is the default setting. This is huge. This has also been included in the GDPR in Europe. Privacy is the default setting means you don't have to wait for your customers to ask you for strong privacy measures. No, you don't put the pressure on them to you know, wade through your terms of service and all the legalese and the privacy policy saying, please do not use my personal information for any purpose other than the primary purpose of the data collection that I've consented to, which is right, this, this collection here. No, very few people do that anymore. You know, life is short, but it doesn't mean they don't care about privacy. Privacy is at an all-time high in terms of concern. In the last two years, all of the public opinion polls, Pew Internet Research, et cetera, have put privacy concern at the 90 percentile, 90% very concerned about their privacy, 92% concerned about loss of control over their information. So anyway, back to privacy as the default setting. What that is, it's you, you say to your customers, no, no, you don't have to ask for privacy. You don't have to find where do I check the box. We give it to you automatically. It's the default setting. We are only permitted to use your personal information for the primary purpose of the data collection that you've consented to. If we want to use it down the road for a secondary use, we have to come back to you and ask for additional consent. This sells like anything. This builds trust like no other at a time when trust is fleeting. And it's just been hugely, hugely successful. Okay, that's number two. Um, Number three, privacy must be embedded into design because you don't want people to forget about it. You want it in the design of what you're doing, bake it into the code. You know, I always ask companies, do you have a data map? And they go, huh? See, usually the first instance where privacy is collected, some kind of permission consent is obtained, but then it wades through the company and goes to different departments and is used for other secondary uses that have not been consented to. So privacy embedded into design means it can only be used for this purpose and additional consent will be required for additional purposes. So what we're saying, first of all, is proactive. Yeah. Secondly, it must be... Default setting. Default setting. Embedded in design. Embedded in design. Oh my gosh. So this, and so you obviously were looking at Facebook, now Meta, and um, and you were just kind of describing the way they did privacy because they did it so perfectly. Yes. Bo, can I tell you something? In yes. the early, early years... Um, Mark Zuckerberg invited me down to California to talk to his team. He'd heard about my privacy by design work yeah. in early years or 2000s or whatever. And he won. He was really interested in privacy. That was before they hired Sheryl Sandberg. <laughs> so at the beginning. But I mean, that people saw that it was a marketing point, that you actually could market the idea that you were private. Uh, but so, but the, are you sure they were wearing um, no ear earplugs or something? You know, it sounds to me like I, I feel like they, they thought, must not have heard you. They thought they could build trust and get people to come and join Facebook, and it would grow. Unfortunately, uh-huh. when Sir Charles Sandberg came on, the model changed completely, the marketing model, and I I left and I just said enough. And what uh, was okay. how did it change? What, what how would you describe the change? They, she wanted to, to get everybody's personal information. 
She had no interest in privacy and marketing was all she wanted to do without any privacy consideration. Got you. And so I left. Okay. Um, number four is full functionality. Now, this may seem odd to you, but what I hate is the zero-sum mindset of privacy versus security or privacy versus data utility or the versus, you know, either or. Zero-sum is one wins, one loses. It's the win-lose model. And it's never privacy that wins, but nor should it be anything else that wins in absence of privacy. So I always reject that. And I talk about full functionality, which is positive sum. Positive sum means you can have two positive gains at the same time. Adam, you have you have four fingers holding your forehead up, which tells me that you're where I am. Do you understand the zero sum thing entirely? I do. You do? All right. And sometimes I have to ask Travis, who I've been working with since 1997, oh, to, ex to <laughs> explain things to me because I've become a doddering old man. Travis? Explain zero sum to me, please. <laughs> um, if I'm not mistaken, I think the way that what we sort of view that is that a zero sum just means that the that the necessary trade off for privacy um, is something where the person whose information is being kept private doesn't um, get anything out of it. There's no benefit overall. Well, well what it, I think zero sum, at least to me, means in order for someone to win, someone has to lose. Lose. That's right. And what you're it's proposing is if you view this as both sides win because it's a marketing plus and it's also a protection for the consumer. So that's not zero. That's no, oh, no. positive sum. Oh, that's it's positive, that's positive sum. sum. I am now educated. I'm now educated. I thank you. Praise everyone. the Lord. We've gotten through I him. finally understand something. This is a good day. All right. Wonderful. I'm so pleased. That makes me happy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I just want to, and also I just figured if I don't get it, probably someone listening doesn't get it. But no, you're so absolutely thank you. right. You're absolutely right. Okay. Now I'm going to go on to number five, end-to-end -end security. While the term privacy subsumes a much broader set of protections than security alone, if you don't have a strong foundation of security from end to end with full lifecycle protection, you're not going to have any privacy. In this day of phishing attacks and uh, hacking all the time, you must have a very solid, strong foundation of security. So that's number five. And in that case, would this just be uh, encryption primarily? Or? I, I always focus on encryption. I love end to end mm -hmm. encryption, but firewalls, you know, all kinds of things. Okay, um, six, visibility and transparency. I tell companies, please keep it open and to governments. The information you collect from people, it's not yours, it's theirs. They're entrusting it to you. And companies that have come back to me who've been come certified for privacy by design, they've come back to me and said, we love this because what the people do when, when we open it up, they look at the data we have about them and they say, oh, no, no, that piece of information, that's no longer true. That was the case two years ago. Now here's the correct information. So they said it increases the accuracy of the information we have and the quality that we have. So they love it. And the last one is just a general one, respect for user privacy. When you keep it user centric, focused on the user, all of this unfolds. It becomes just so obvious and it shows respect for the individual's privacy. That's it. Those are the seven foundational principles. And, you know, you might think a lot of people hear these and they say, well, it sounds good, but it's going to be too hard to do, right? In real life, it's too hard. Wrong. We have a paper we published um, while I was still commissioner 
called Operationalizing Privacy by Design, which is consisting of, um, I think, 11 papers that we did with companies about different things, you know, biometrics, smart meters, personal data of all kinds, uh, home health care, you name it. And it really works. I'll give you one thing we did with Intel and home health care. Uh, as people get older, uh, they, they still want to live in their homes, even though they're living alone, but they might need some help once in a while. So Intel uh, worked with us. It's beautiful. They created these sensors that you can put on your bed or wherever you decide to put it. So that let's say you're living alone in your house, you get up in the middle of the night to use the restroom. You don't return within a predetermined period of time. The sensor goes off. It gets help that you've consented to. You've agreed to at the beginning. But they build privacy by design in it. So nobody else gets this information. It is strongly coded, protected. It only goes to the people you've agreed to have that information sent to, the healthcare provider, the hospital, whatever. And it helps the individual stay at home. So that's just one example. Uh, so there are many, many other examples like that. And then in 2010, privacy by design was uh, unanimously passed as an international standard by the International Assembly of Privacy Commissioners and Data Protection Authorities. Uh, that was a real honor. And so you mentioned uh, certification for uh, Privacy by Design. Yeah. Uh, is that through Privacy Commissioners or how does that process work? It's through myself and KPMG. I mm -hmm. partnered with KPMG because I, I have a, a consulting service now for the past two years, um, the Global Privacy and Security by Design Center. So when, when people have a website, et cetera, so if people want to be certified for privacy by design, they come to me and with their consent, I say, I'm going to send your information to KPMG who will contact you and pour through everything you do to ensure that you're in fact following privacy by design. And then when they get certified, they can you know wear it on their website, wear it as a badge of honor. Then they said it gives them enormous trust from their customers it builds trust, it keeps the customers they have, and it attracts new opportunity. So, so, Anne, what I'm hearing is it's basically the privacy by design uh, standards are similar to the lead standards. You can be gold, silver, et cetera. Is that right? This one, it's not as complicated. You either yeah. get certified or you don't because okay. it's much simpler, I think. But it's used as a marketing point in the same way leads is. Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. Because they're offering the strongest privacy possible to their customers. So overall, um, just in the general privacy landscape, what worries you most these days? Surveillance is mounting enormously, as you know. Mm -hmm. And what I fear is everybody's in, in a hurry, right? Everybody's rushing around. And um, the tendency to just say, yeah, sure. It's when you go to a website you're not familiar with, you don't know what they're going to do with your information. People just hurry through things, which I understand. But... That's the unfortunate part. It, it will contribute to the growth of surveillance. And then something happens and your information somehow flows out to unauthorized third parties who would use your information in ways that was never intended. And then away it goes. Plus, apart from that, identity theft. If you are not with a company who protects your data strongly, identity theft is growing enormously. And it's a nightmare. I remember when I was privacy commissioner, victims of identity theft would come to me and say, can you please help me? I, you know, I didn't do, rack up all those charges or that's not me, that's somebody else. And the first thing I used to say to them is, of course, I'll help you, but go to the police first, file an occurrence report, something that validates 
your claim that your identity has been stolen. And then I would work with them to help them clear their name. But it, it could take years sometimes. It's, it's a nightmare. If you were going to identify the one company in the world that you think is doing the best job or the top three, what would you say? Or are you allowed to say? Or, oh, You know, Adam, I haven't. I haven't I haven't done that. Um, I'll just tell you off the top, the company that one of the companies that I love, uh, Apple, they go to great lengths to give you end to end encryption on your mobile device. I have an iPhone, for example. Right. And I also know I've looked under the hood. They go to great lengths to protect your personal information that they have. So if I had to name one company, it'd be Apple. Um, There are others. There's a company called Identos here in Canada that does investigations of things, but they're totally privacy protective. And, um, oh gosh, there, there aren't, uh, dozens of these companies, unfortunately. Well, and, and you know, the other thing we know too is, is in the old days when things were created, like for instance, the electronic health records, the issue was not privacy and security, despite what governments may tell you. The issue was, does it work? And people were incentivized to either, they were disincentivized by they were penalized if they didn't do electronic health records, and they were incentivized if they did. But it, it and, was, and did they work, Adam? Uh, oh. They worked better than paper files, but they were, they were not secure. That was the whole issue is they were not secure. So that to me says they don't work on, on some very essential level. Electronic health records are a nightmare, depending on who's doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, They can be used for a variety of purposes that you have not consented to. It can go into other hands for other purposes. It's um, and this and this is not something that you can deal with just by looking at your explanation of benefits or stuff. I mean, this is behind the scenes, way behind the scenes. That's right. When you were commissioner, this is one of the big issues you dealt with: is is protected health information, correct? And, and we were very lucky in my jurisdiction, Ontario, Canada, we had something called PHIPAA, the Personal Health Information Protection Act. And it allowed me to have great strength in terms of privacy of health information um, in my jurisdiction. So we just insisted upon this, that consent is essential. The patient has to know how you're using your information. Obviously, for your healthcare pr- provider, your general practitioner, your family doctor, you go to him, you want help, you want him to refer it to some specialist, and you're going to get some tests, and all of that is great and should be allowed because the person is is you know in a risky state and they're nervous and stuff. So we said we wanted it to work again, not put not zero sum. So we said. Okay, you go to your healthcare provider for seeking his or her assistance. They can share it with other healthcare providers that they're going to refer you to that you have consented to, right? Right. So that's fine. They can do that automatically. But the minute the information, your health information, is in any way intended to go outside of healthcare, the walls go up. You must give positive consent or you can't send the information. We've had great success with this. How do you feel about facial recognition technology? Oh, I hate it. I hate it for a number of reasons. First of all, it's 
most of the time it's not accurate. Um, they use facial recognition extensively in uh, Britain, in the UK, mm-hmm. and 83% of the time, it's a false positive. So can you imagine? 83% of the time, it says, yeah, it's you, and it's not you. It's a false positive. It can ruin, I mean, it could just do such damage to your life. But so, the phone, the phone, my speaking of which, the Apple phone, it, it, it's 100% of the time works. So where's, that's where's one the... To one. That's the difference, Bo. Oh. One to many is my face being compared to hundreds of thousands of people in the population. I got you. So it's like when you go and Google, when you do a Google search on the image and you get like, I'm like, here's me. Can you find me? And they're like, yeah, here's 1800 50 year old men with salt and pepper (laughs) hair. Yeah. But that's exactly one to one is brilliant. It's me against uh, my iPhone. Like you said, or I have a Nexus card. Not that I'll be traveling anytime soon. It's so crazy. But I, I used to travel to the States a lot. Nexus helped me enormously because they use my facial recognition. When I go to the Nexus thing at the airport, they compare my live face to the one image to they have, which I consented to one to one. That's the difference, Bo. One to many okay. is a nightmare. What are some basic and practical things that people can uh, use to protect their privacy just in their everyday life? Do not disclose your information mm-hmm. to third parties unknown. And you know, I say that and people go, yeah, but you know, I'm going online all the time. I want information. I just say yes to cookies, yes to everything. That's one of the biggest problems. If you allow your information to flow and in context of whatever you're doing, then and you're not careful with what you consent to, be I can guarantee it's gonna to go to third parties unknown that are not mm-hmm. authorized to collect your data. When you go, if you if, oh, let me give you a physical example, you go into a real life store, like in the world. You go into the store and you buy something with your credit card. Often they, you know, they take your credit card, you make the payment, and they might say, here in Canada, they say, what's your postal code? I, of course, always say, oh, um, what would you like the postal code for? I'm really curious about that. I don't know how that affects my privacy. The minute I ask the question, the clerk doesn't know what I'm talking about. They go get the manager. The manager comes back and says, oh, you care about privacy. We can do this, this, and this. It immediately elevates their protection of your data. So I always tell everybody, the one thing you can do at the beginning of any of these, express your interest in privacy right at the beginning. It'll take you down a different path. And I'm not saying you're gonna get perfect data protection, but you will get stronger data protection than if you don't raise it. So if someone is a cynic and they say, hey, I don't have a problem giving up my privacy for convenience. (laughs) Why should people care about protecting their privacy? I love it. It's like, I, you know, I have nothing to hide. What's the big deal? I don't have a problem with that because it's going to come back and bite you in ways you couldn't have anticipated. You don't know how information about you can be used to harm you in ways you can't possibly anticipate. That's what I learned when I was privacy commissioner for such a long time. I couldn't imagine all the different ways that unknown third parties could use your data that could cause you harm. So it's not about having wanting to hide anything. I would say privacy is about control. It's about personal control over the use and disclosure of your personal information. If you want to give it out to the world, be my guest. That's your right. As long as you make the decision to do so, it's critical. Um, you know, it resonates with people when I'm talking. Uh, self, the Germans have a wonderful term called informational self-determination, that it should be the individual who determines the fate of his or her personal information. 
And they know from experience what a huge difference this can make. You can't anticipate how things can happen to you. Just know that they will. And just take a little additional measure, express your concern for privacy and your interest, and it will elevate your protection dramatically. See, the reason it's so important for the individual to consent to have control over the use and disclosure of their information is because context is key. Nobody knows the context associated with the data other than the individual. Something to one person may not be sensitive at all. To another person, it may be extremely sensitive because their context is different. So I always say to people, to companies, you don't know the context associated with the data. So that's another reason why it's very important to ensure that the data are consented to by the individual. And again, the German informational self-determination arose from that mindset as well. Listen, we could go on forever. <laughs> and <laughs> we you. will come back and go on okay. forever. I hope you do. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you all. But it we really, really appreciate what you've said. And heaven knows you've had an incredibly stellar career. Oh, thank you. I've been very lucky. guys, you do realize Anne Kavukian is a legend. She's a rock star when it comes to privacy and security. Was Rafi ever a rock star? Well, he's a children's rock star. Okay, so there's like, it's all rock stars. Throw a rock, hit a rock star in Actually, their family. Actually, he's a folk star. Folk yeah, like pop yeah. star maybe at best. Yeah. We have to have her back because I didn't even get to talk to... One of the questions that I wanted to ask her about was whether or not my phone is listening to me, which I'm quite sure it is. And Travis, thank you for not saying that I probably Googled whatever it is I think my phone heard. All right, friends. It's time now for the tinfoil swan, our paranoid takeaway that'll help keep you safe online. Right. So like when you get, you know, your, your the rest of your food from the from the restaurant, you take it home and it's in the tinfoil swan, take the tinfoil part, put it on your head and you're safe. Correct? No, uh, not so much. <laughs> okay, fine. So what is what is our tip this week? What do we want to talk about? Our tip this week has to do with Twitter privacy. Oh, that sounds like an oxymoron. It's sort of like military intelligence. <laughs> Jumbo <laughs> shrimp. <laughs> How do you do it? It's fortunately pretty uh, straightforward. You just go to settings and privacy when you're logged into Twitter. And then uh -huh. once you're there, you click on the privacy and safety tab. And then there's a little sliding bar next to protect your tweets, which means that your tweets will be private. How far should I slide the bar? <laughs> oh, come on. All the way. All the way. Oh. So there, and there's another thing that you can do, which is you can just delete your account. No. Adam, don't you really want to... How many followers do you have now? Almost 60,000. So, you know, that would be a big protest statement. That's like, that is that is like an auto de fe. You just, just delete that account, Adam. I like my Twitter followers. Okay, never mind. So, Travis, what's the security benefit for me keeping my Twitter private? Any information you post about yourself on social media can be used against you, either to hack your accounts or steal your identity. And so, by keeping it private, that means that you're putting less personal data out there okay but it's social media and you know if you have it set private that means that you're not actually doing what 
it does. You're not being social. That is the oxymoronic situation. That's the paradox, right? Is that, you know, social media, social media is just not a place to be if you want to keep your information private, period. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, rate and review. It helps people find it. And we'll see you next week. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. It's produced by Andrew Stephen, the man with two first names. You can find us online at loudtreemedia.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin.